Good morning. Scripture reading for today comes from Psalm 1. If you're using a blue Bible, that's on page 448. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You may be seated. Take a few moments to meditate on God's word. I don't know if y'all feel it, but there's something about this morning. I don't know if it's the, the COVID news or the weather or what it is, but it just feels like a kind of a heavy, low-energy morning. Um, and so David Heinrichs is the person that you should call to deal with a low-energy morning ordinarily. Uh, this morning you have me, uh, Joseph Ray. So uh, I'm going to do the best I can. But uh, I just want to acknowledge that because um, we have the, um, you know, Christians aren't called to be just bubbly and optimistic about everything all the time. There's a place, as we've talked about before, for uh, laments and repentance and suffering, weeping with those who weep. Um, But there's also, we should have this foundation and a bedrock of joy that comes from the hope we have in Christ. And so I just want to, want like acknowledge what I'm feeling and what it seems like we're feeling and to to say that that's that's okay. But I want us to... um, to experience the joy of worshiping God and seeing his goodness as we're going to see this text invites us to do. So let me pray for us and we'll begin. Dear God, this passage has as its center this beautiful image of a a tree planted by streams of water that no matter what the outside conditions are like, it grows and it thrives and it bears fruit because it's rooted in a source of life. And so God, today as we study the, the practice at the center of this text, the practice of meditating on your word, I pray that you would help us see the, the beauty and the opportunity of that and you would help us adopt it in a way that leads us to become more and more like this tree so that no matter what we face on the outside in terms of climate conditions, no matter what we go through in life, that we would find ourselves rooted deeply in your word and drawing life from it. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I've had Olympics on the brain. Uh, I hope you have too. I think it's just such a fun opportunity we have as a whole world to uh, really come together and experience the joy of kind of fun national competition. Um, But uh, one of the things that has struck me in the last weeks, and those of you who follow the Olympics will be aware of this, um, because I referenced her two weeks ago in my sermon. Simone Biles, the American gymnast, had to leave a competition in the middle of kind of after an event because she said that it seems like she maybe hurt herself a little bit physically, but she said that her her mental game wasn't where it was supposed to be. And she immediately got kind of either held up as like a martyr to the, I don't know, the for the value of emotional self-management or something, mental health, or condemned as this like coward. And that's preposterous. I think she's been just overly done on both sides. She's a person who experienced a moment that made her feel like she needed to leave. But what uh, really comes from that, I think the thing to see in it, the interesting thing, uh, because I started researching about this, is the importance of the mental game to an Olympic athlete. A lot of Olympic athletes will say that the physical dimension of training is significant, but at least as significant is the mental game. That includes the the moment of competition where they are visualizing what they're going to do, where they are kind of shutting out the outside world so they can focus and perform at their absolute physical peak. And it also governs how they live their lives, that an Olympic athlete, when, especially when they're in training mode, they don't sleep like the rest of the world. They don't spend their hours like the rest of the world. They don't eat or even have fun like the rest of the world because they have this event in their mind that is so significant that they're dwelling on it and letting it govern how they spend their time, even how they eat. It shapes their meals. And so there's a mental game that is part of the success of these highest, most elite athletes that leads to the, the glory of Olympic gold. In the same way for us as Christians, and what we're going to look at today, there is a mental game of the life of faith to where we have an object that we fix our minds on and we focus ourselves on, and that what happens in our mind governs the rest of our lives. That if we spend, if we set our focus where it's supposed to be, in the way that it's supposed to be, we will find ourselves eating, sleeping, living, talking differently because we have a mental game that's preparing us for not just fading Olympic glory, but the eternal glory of the new creation. And so we're going to look at an aspect of the mental game of Christianity today. And at the center of that mental game is the practice of meditating on Scripture. And that's the central theme of this psalm. So meditating on scripture is the key to that life-giving image of being a tree planted by streams of water. And this psalm, this poem, was chosen as the opening poem of the book of Psalms. So it's meant to set the tone for the rest, the other 149 poems in this Bible. They go back upstream to this practice of meditating on God's word. In our day, the word meditation conjures up either like an Eastern religious exercise of emptying the mind or maybe something like a mindfulness exercise, which are not what are, you know, part, it's not what Jewish and Christian meditation are. So if you're envisioning when you hear meditation like yoga mats and essential oils, there's nothing wrong with yoga mats and essential oils, but that's not what's in view here. It's very different. On the back end of the sermon, we're going to take a deeper look at what meditation is but we can summarize it like this. Meditation is thinking deeply to understand the Bible, 
worship the God of the Bible and be changed by the Bible. I'll say it again. Meditation is thinking deeply about scripture to understand it, to worship the God of it, and to be changed by it. And so that's the definition that we're going to be working out of. As we do those things, we will find ourselves growing into the vision and the promise of this psalm. And so we have two big questions today. The first question is, why is meditation valuable? And the second question is, how do we meditate? What does it mean exactly? So to the first question, why is meditating on scripture valuable? And to summarize this psalm, meditation is valuable because it helps us live faithfully, fully, and forever. Meditation helps us live faithfully, fully, and forever. So first, meditation helps us live faithfully with God. Look at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So here meditation is directly contrasted. It's set in opposition to a life of unfaithfulness to God. Hebrew poetry will often repeat or kind of riff on a concept to make a point. And so here, the wicked, sinners, and scoffers are three ways of saying people who live apart from God's word. So to walk in the counsel of the wicked is to act according to the quote-unquote wisdom of wickedness. To stand in the way of sinners doesn't mean like to block the path of a sinner. It means to be found on the same direction that someone apart from God's word is heading. And to sit in the seat of scoffers is like to make yourself comfortable in a life that's founded apart from God's word. The psalm uses these three actions to show that the person who meditates on scripture has a comprehensive or an integrated righteousness. It's not just that they have their Sunday game down pat, but on their Monday morning with the kids or their Wednesday afternoon at a stressful time at work or their Friday evening with their friends or their Saturday night alone by themselves, no matter where you slice their life, it's so saturated with scripture that you can kind of cut a slice and you'll smell it. You'll smell the ingredient. It's in there. The language in verse 1 actually refers back to a very important passage in what would have been the psalmist Bible, which was at least the first five books of our Bible, and maybe by this point, depending on when it was written, the first six or seven. Listen as I read this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So you can hear the parallels as I read it. These words, God's words that I speak to you today, he says they're going to be on your heart. You shall talk of them when you sit, when you walk, when you stand, when you lie down, when you rise. They're meant to saturate every dimension, every aspect of God's people's lives. And so that's what it means to meditate on Scripture, is to uh, get it all the way through us so that we become faithful to God, no matter where we are, when we are, in what circumstances we are. Toward the end of our preaching series on King David, it was this spring, Pastor Paul talked about how David had so much of life right. There were so many things that he was doing like he should. But he left a gap in his defenses, a gap in his righteousness with lust. And that sin wreaked havoc, not just on his life, 
but on the lives of friends and family around him and even on his entire kingdom. In the last few years, we've seen a whole slew of pastors and Christian leaders. Uh, This has happened with plenty of non-Christians too, but we should be concerned about our own house before we point fingers at others. Christian leaders who did many things right and who led churches and ministries that bore real fruit, not fake fruit, real fruit. Now, all, all Christian leaders are imperfect, just like all people are. We sin, we have to repent and turn from it. But we've seen this uh, big chunk of leaders who had some major area of their life that was a, a gap in their defenses. One way, they weren't walking, standing, or sitting under the authority that they should. And it could have been, you know, we had sexual sin, arrogance, hunger for power or money. And that sin has blown up in a way that hurt their lives, their churches, even the public witness of Christianity. One of the guys I'm aware of has even committed suicide as a result of the things that came from it. Those things came not from a a normal pattern of failing and stumbling and repenting and turning it around. Those came from a pattern of not meditating scripture into every aspect of their lives. They let something, whether it was lust or desire for power and control or greed for money seep into their lives and it didn't just stay in one pocket it poisoned the whole thing that's what sin does so meditation on god's word helps us avoid that and live faithfully to god second meditating on the word helps us live fully with god it's not just faithfully but fully Look at verses 3 and 4. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Meditating on Scripture makes us like a tree planted by streams of water. The Middle East, where this writer lived, had a lot of desert climate. It can be very dry there with not a lot of rainfall. And so there are references all over scripture to grass that pops up after a rain and then is baked away uh, within hours by the sun. Or of being in a dry and thirsty land. Water scarcity was a very real problem and a very real reality for these people. And so this image would have been, we tend to think of it as like, oh, it sounds like a nice screensaver. This would have been like life and death to them, this image. And so meditating on scripture leads to this kind of fruitful abundance. Now, uh, most of y'all know this, but just to be clear, this doesn't mean physical abundance on this side of eternity. Um, It doesn't mean health, wealth, and prosperity. Um, There are people who say that. uh, It doesn't. Jesus was as faithful as you could get, and he was poor, persecuted, abandoned, and killed. He told his followers they probably would be too. So um, the fullness that's in view here is a spiritual fullness. It's an inner life of joy in God that uh, bears fruit into service and love and holiness. One of the things that the earliest Christians were known for, they were not wealthy, famous, or powerful by and large. They were mainly known for loving well and suffering well. That they could endure hostility, rejection, abandonment, even persecution uh, because they had this inner strength that fueled them through those things. And so that's what Christianity produces. It produces a thriving soul. Now, it helps us do this. It helps us live fully in part because the teachings in these 66 books, uh, which is what's in the Bible, uh, once we rightly understand them, 
they encapsulate the way that human life was designed to be lived. So they were written by the designer of human nature. It'd be sort of like learning how to use an iPhone from Steve Jobs. You know, he's the one that you should ask if you have questions about how do I use my iPhone. Um, so we have in Scripture um, the pattern for life that's the, the true stories, the true facts about who God is and who we are, the true ethical principles that describe the way that life is supposed to go. And there's a, uh, there have been a number of atheists or agnostic thinkers in recent years, from Jordan Peterson to Douglas Murray to Tom Holland, who's also the name of the actor who plays Spider-Man. It's a different Tom Holland. Um, they both show up in my Twitter feed, which can be confusing sometimes. But, um, but they've published books and pieces about how Christianity provides both a set of individual ethics and even society-wide principles that most of us agree are a better way to live um, and that aren't immediately obvious if you look around human culture and certainly not if you hold kind of just an, an only evolutionary view of how we came to be here. Even if you take just a few of the Ten Commandments, most everyone agrees that we would all be better off if no one murdered or hated, if no one stole or was greedy, if no one lied or committed injustice to defraud others, and if everyone is faithful to their wives or husbands, that's just a better way to live. And so that's part of what makes this uh, a fuller life. But uh, meditation also leads to living fully because the Bible actually leads us to God himself. It doesn't primarily or just show us a way to live that's human-centered. It directs us to the author of the work. The 66 books here are different from other books, even other good Christian books, which you can learn from, because they weren't just authored by people. They were simultaneously authored by God himself. The Apostle Paul writes, all scripture is breathed out by God. So that means that these words in this book were breathed out by the living God, who wasn't just alive and active then, but who is alive and active right now. And then the writer of the book of Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active, that it pierces to the division of soul and spirit and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word is living because it was breathed by the living God. And when we come into contact with these words, we aren't just coming into contact with, you know, a great book with great principles and great stories. We would come into contact with the living and breathing and speaking author of the book. And that's the creator of the universe and the one who made us to be filled in him. And so that's why meditation leads to living fully. And then third, meditating on scripture is part of living forever with God. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because weirdly enough, both David and I in the last few weeks have talked a lot about this. Uh, and so we've covered the ground in the last few sermons. But uh, here verses five and six. They read, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The end of sin, the end of those who don't meditate God's word throughout every aspect of their lives. The end of that is separation from God for eternity. That's what it means to say the way of the wicked will perish. And the phrase, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, means not just that God is aware of what the righteous are doing and that he's conscious of it. It means that God is close to them in all his glory and his power, that he preserves them 
Again, not by making them successful or wealthy on this side of things, but by raising them to eternal life in the new creation. That hope comes from God's grace, and we live into that hope by meditating on the word. So that's the why. How do we meditate on scripture? It's a million-dollar question. I said earlier that meditation is thinking deeply to understand the Bible, worship the God of the Bible, and be changed by the Bible. There's a key to this in the image of the rooted plant here in verse 3. If you look at the soil under a little baby plant, like a brand new little sapling, then what you'll see under the surface is one tiny little root, you know, just a little hair kind of sticking down. But if you look under the soil of a giant tree, what you find is this whole network of roots, you know, thousands if not more of filaments and strands and even like ropes kind of running all through the soil. So that the way that that little sapling became a giant tree was because it pushed more of itself into that same patch of soil. And as it did that, it drew more nutrients that let it grow bigger and bigger. So plants don't grow by taking a little nourishment from the soil, then, you know, like uprooting themselves like ants in Lord of the Rings to go walk to a new patch and get like a new round of stuff. Um, even Venus flytraps, so Wilmington's botanical claim to fame, they don't go hunting for flies. Um, they grow more and more of the, the creepy little leaf mouth things. And having more of those things makes it possible for them to catch more flies, get more nutrition, and grow bigger and bear fruit. In the same way, meditation is pushing more of ourselves into Scripture so that as we spend more time with it, as I let more of my imagination, my mental game, and then the rest of my life flowing out of that be connected to it and saturated with it, then we grow in the ways that we've discussed already. More understanding of Scripture, more worship of God from Scripture, more openness to be changed by Scripture leads to more growth. And so there's not one single prescribed method or set of questions for meditation. Um, you know, it's a little bit like that old Reese's commercial. There's no wrong way to eat a Reese's. Um, there are wrong ways to meditate on scripture, but there are a lot of right ones. And what they have in common is these three factors, that they are ways to think deeply, to understand the scriptures, to worship God through them, and to be changed by them. And so to do this and to look at this more fully, we're actually going to put a little text up on the screen behind me, and we are going to use that to meditate this morning. The text is, once it comes up, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. There it is. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, if in the morning I do a shallow read of this text and I try to pray without putting too much roots into it, I might come away with a prayer that sounds something like this. Uh, God, I'm glad that you were strong enough to rescue Israel from slavery. That was good. Thank you that I'm not in slavery. It's also good. Please help me not worship Zeus or Thor, I guess. Amen. So I, I, I didn't just say anything. I didn't say anything wrong in that prayer. There's nothing technically wrong there. It was all factually accurate. But you can hear the, the shallowness of it, that it's not doing much for me. It's not connecting much into my life. So that's the product of a, a shallow read. And so meditation is thinking deeply so that I come away with much more from a text. 
So let's see what that looks like. First, we said that meditation means understanding the scriptures. It means using our minds to see what a text means. So this involves what we traditionally call Bible study, which is not necessarily equal to meditation, but there's significant overlap. Um, If you do Bible studies or in part of a group Bible study, um, you can meditate by yourself or you can meditate with other people by talking about it together. Now, I don't always use this when I spend time in the Word, but I have an ESV study Bible that has a good medium level of notes. It's not an overwhelming amount of, like, commentary about Greek and Hebrew verbs. It just gives me, like, some basic explanatory material to make sure I'm not lost when I'm reading a text. Um, So a good study Bible can help foster some deeper understanding if I'm not sure what's going on. Um, I don't get paid by the ESV people. I'm still waiting for their endorsement to come in. Um, So hopefully soon. Um, So if I apply myself to understand scripture, this text here, a little bit more, I'll see that God is saying this just days after dividing a sea and leading the Israelites through it on dry ground. I'll see that he brought them out of centuries of slavery when they were nobodies, and he did it by devastating the biggest predatory political superpower in their corner of the world at the time. I'll think about the fact that he said right here, I am your God which means that he has committed himself to a relationship with this nobody people. He has been their savior, and now he wants to be their God. I'll see, too, that his name, the Lord, in caps like that, is the name I Am, which means the God who always is. So that means this isn't just a random deity speaking like the Egyptian gods Ra or Horus. This is the all-powerful creator of the universe from Genesis 1. There is no other God before him because there can't be. He existed when nothing else existed, and he made everything there is. So that makes it absurd to think about having another God before him in practice. And because I'm a Christian, and I know that we don't fully understand a passage of Scripture until we understand how it connects to the life, death, resurrection, and saving work of Jesus, I can keep pushing my understanding. Because Jesus said that he was the I Am. He identified himself with this Lord God in Exodus 20. He didn't just bring Israel out of physical slavery in Egypt, which was amazing. He brought me out of spiritual slavery to my own selfishness, my own comfort and pride. And he didn't just say that he would be my savior. He proved it by dying on the cross for my sin and rising from the dead to earn me eternal life. So I just applied myself a little bit. I just pushed a little bit more of my understanding into this text. And already you can hear how richer my understanding of it is and how richer my engagement with God through it is going to be. So that's meditation, just pushing understanding a little bit. I'm getting out. Oh, and nothing changed in the passage. I didn't have to go somewhere else to get this. I just put more of myself in there. I thought a little bit more deeply. So next, I think about worship. What is there to see and worship about God in this passage? I can worship his greatness and power that he showed over Egypt. I can worship his grace for picking a people as insignificant as Israel and a sinner as worthless as I am. I can worship him for rescuing me from sins that would have wrecked my life on this side of eternity and then sunk it on the next side as well because that's what I deserve. And I know from my own experience that he didn't just rescue me once in the past, Again and again, as I've sinned and left him, he's come back and brought me back to him and reaffirmed this commitment over and over again because of what he did for me in Christ. What a glorious God who has power over death and suffering itself. 
What a glorious God who gave up his own son to buy pathetic me out of slavery, who is so patient and merciful with me in my weaknesses and failures, who is far and beyond what you know, the patient God that I try to be as a father to my kids. Um, he is so much more than that. And the more I see of that beauty, the more I worship that gracious and merciful and powerful God, then how could I ever think of putting another God before him? Once again, nothing changed about the passage. I haven't gone anywhere else, but I've thought more deeply, and I'm having a richer experience through it. I'm growing more through it. And then finally, I think deeply in the hope of being changed by the text. Sure, I don't worship Zeus. I don't have a literal golden statue problem, thankfully. But an awful lot of my time and energy gets taken up with seeking comfort and success for myself. Of kind of meditating on and dwelling on ways that I can kind of break away from my responsibilities and either just find something that makes me feel, you know, like at ease and peaceful, or that I can, uh, you know, kind of scheme and plan my way into getting more approval from other people and more status or significance for myself. And so I can see if I think about it, if I'm honest, those things often get more of my attention than God does. And they tempt me to sin by neglecting to love others or to serve in uncomfortable ways. So they're not golden statues, but they function as gods in my life, as things that I put before this Lord and God of the universe. So I'm going to ask God, please show me areas of my life where I'm tempted to hope in comfort or success instead of in you, where those hold a higher place in my heart than you do. Show me how fragile and worthless those gods are, how all comforts in life are fragile and fading, and they're all going to be gone when I die, if not before. And how even successful people have empty and unhappy lives often. Help me repent of ways I sin by pursuing those things when they make me impatient with my kids or unloving toward others. And because I've been thinking deeply about it, I'm more likely to take that with me through my day and to be aware of those things as they confront me than I might be otherwise. I'll see myself speaking a certain way and being like, oh, that's me seeking for success right now or acting a certain way, and it's, oh, I'm really wanting comfort too much. And so there, my life is going to be changed as a product of my meditating on that passage. And the end result of this, the end result of living in a way that we are meditating on God's word, on our own and with others, that we're thinking deeply about it, is that we become this plant that is rooted in a source of life that more and more of my life is grounded in the only one who really gives and ensures, you know, full life now and eternal life in the future. I become more and more likely to live faithfully, fully, in the hope of living forever with God.